0: In this episode, we will be using BattleBards sound effects. Check them out, BattleBards.com. And if you're signing up for a Prime account, be sure to use our code STACK to get a discount. Flavoring up Thieves' Camp. It's so easy to let game mechanics feel, well, mechanical. But they don't have to be dungeons and dragons and other rpgs draw from rich sources and if we know a little bit more about these we can find ways to use the extra detail to enrich our games in our last flavoring up creation corner episode we looked at the barbarians rage feature and i hope you enjoyed as much as i did the process of looking into some of the underlying source material for that I also thought it was fun to look at how to bring some of those elements into a game. As we dive into another Creation Corner episode today, we'll look at another aspect of the core rules, and try to pull on history and literature in a similar way. This time we're going to leave the clamor of the battlefield behind, and concentrate on a bit of skullduggery as we talk about Thieves' Cant. If you've ever played a rogue, you've seen that the class picks up two second-level features. One of them, Cunning Action, seems to get lots of in-game exposure, and for good reason. It's incredibly useful in battle. Being able to dash, disengage, or hide without giving up an action is a wonderful ability, and if used well, can help the rogue continue to be his sneaky little self, pouring on the damage and slipping into the shadows to do it all over again. But the other might be a bit of a head-scratcher. It's called Thieves' Cant, and here's the description right out of the player's handbook. During your rogue training, you learned Thieves' Cant, a secret mix of dialect, jargon, and code that allows you to hide messages in seemingly normal conversation. Only another creature that knows Thieves' Cant understands such messages. It takes four times longer to convey such a message than it does to speak the same idea plainly. In addition, you understand a set of secret signs and symbols used to convey short, simple messages, such as whether an area is dangerous, or the territory of a thieves' guild, whether loot is nearby or whether the people in an area are easy marks or will provide a safe house for thieves on the run. Neat. Now, what on earth do I do with that, as a player or as a DM? If you're like me, you've probably never played in a campaign where this feature plays much of a role. And I can understand why. Things like cunning action are easy to fit in because combat is a part of most D&D games. If a player's up on the character's features, it's easy enough to work in, especially since it offers a signal advantage in combat. But thieves can't? Well, that requires a dungeon master to invest extra effort and plot work to think of how to appropriately and meaningfully work a secret language and writing into a game. That's not as easy to work in, And frankly, I don't blame DMs who let this go by the board. However, I think there's some meat to this concept, so I think it'll be fun to take on this topic to explain its origins and think of some engaging ways to push Thieves' Cant into the limelight. Who knows? Maybe we'll start a revolution today. I think it makes most sense to begin by defining our terms. The Thieves part, that's easy enough for us. But Cant isn't an everyday word, so let's take a quick look. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, cant means to sing or chant, but the details of the derivation and development of sense are unknown. So far as the evidence shows, the verb appears in English first applied to the tones and language of beggars, the canting crew. This, which according to Harmon, was introduced around 1540, may have come down from the religious mendicants, or beggars, or the word may have been actually made from Latin or Romanic in the rogue's jargon of the time the speech or phraseology of beggars, etc., and sense connected therewith, a whining manner of speaking, especially of beggars, a whine. And finally, the peculiar language or jargon of a class, the secret language or jargon used by gypsies, thieves, professional beggars, etc., any jargon used for the purpose of secrecy. So that's what the Oxford English Dictionary has to say, and as a side note, I'm working from an older version of that dictionary, for your awareness, the Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary is careful to point out that the word gypsy is generally frowned upon today due to stereotypes that have been tied to the name. The people associated that were commonly called gypsies in the 15 and 1600s prefer to go by Romani today. I tend to use Romani myself out of respect for the culture, but because much of the source material we're considering in this episode is older, we're bound to hear and read a lot of the word gypsy. At this point, I think it's important to say that although there are lots of ideas about where and when Kant originated, nothing is definitive. The origins are about as murky as the lives of those who used it. If you look at the topic for long, you'll see some colorful origin stories, for sure, and it's tempting to want to pick any one of them as the source, but it's difficult to say with certainty that this was indeed where it began. So to summarize that definition cant started as a verb in the mid-1500s and meant a type of speech spoken by a specific class of people to accentuate this my favorite starting point for word origin research Etymonline, online shares a quote by an author john farmer from 1896 where he says slaying is universal whilst cant is restricted in usage to certain classes of the community thieves vagrom men and well their associates Slang boasts a quasi-respectability denied to Kant, though Kant is frequently more enduring, its use continuing without variation of meaning for many generations. That's interesting. In his experience, Mr. Farmer says that Kant is a bit more dependable as a means of communicating since it changes meaning more slowly. Another source I consulted seemed to indicate this wasn't the case, which makes sense. All language undergoes change over time, whether in the sounds it uses, the meanings of words, or the way sentences are constructed. So unless you're French, which has a governing body that controls the purity of the language, it would be remarkable if Kant didn't change, especially as secret words became known to those outside the body of speakers. And that is an incredibly important part of this topic, because Kant wasn't just a way of figuring out who belongs to a body of speakers. It was a way of hiding intent so that only those in the know would understand. Cant is a type of speech that's called a cryptolect, a hidden or secret language. The intent is to be able to speak freely, but in such a way that the meaning of the message is hidden from the casual passerby. Anyone else in the know is then able to receive the message, and it can all be done in the open. There's a great Unbabel article on the subject that shares some quotes, like this one by George Andrews in his Dictionary of the Slang and Kant Languages. One great misfortune to which the public are liable is that thieves have a language of their own, by which means they associate together in the streets without fear of being overheard or understood. The article's author goes on to say the word associate here is meant to suggest, infer, and imply that these criminals and con men aren't just talking in public, they're scheming and planning their next hit maybe even on someone who's right there listening and that is a chilling notion that someone could be discussing not only how to steal your possessions but perhaps even how to knock you on the head or cut your throat right there in front of you and you have no clue it's a sobering thought so far we've talked around the subject of kant but what would kant sound like in Brian Reynolds' engaging scholarly book, Becoming Criminal, Transversal Performance and Cultural Dissidents in Early Modern England, 2002, we find plenty of examples. I'll share one taken from a play by Ben Johnson, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare. Here's a sample section from the book that shares a sentence or two from Johnson's play, The Gypsies Metamorphosed. In this book, he writes, a character displays his proficiency in cant when he speaks of a young gypsy, the offspring of a sheriff's daughter and a gypsy captain, who must march in the infant's equipage till with his painful progenitors he be able to beat it on the hard hoof to the bene or the stowling ken, to nip a yan or cly the yark. Translation, the young criminal must associate and operate with the other inexperienced criminals, March in the infant's equipage, until he learns enough to participate with his elders, painful progenitors, in the hard life of crime, hard hoof, to cut a purse or be whipped, to nipayan or cly the yark, and go with them to the alehouse, house, or place in which stolen goods are received and disposed of, stalling kin. A short way down the same page, the author shares a quote from the same play, spoken by the same character. If here we be a little obscure, it is our pleasure, for rather than, we will offer to be our own interpreters. We are resolved not to be understood. This canting speech was a mark of pride and belonging to another class of society, but it also masked one's intentions. And what a grip! that society had on the more respectable sort. The criminal underworld was apparently as riveting to the England of the 15 and 1600s as it is to us today. You can't look through our streaming services without seeing numerous offerings that deal with crime, documentaries about serial killers, procedural crime dramas, heist movies, and so on. Just like today, looking at the seedy world of crime was equally a form of popular entertainment and appeared very often in books and plays of the day. In 1566, English justice Thomas Harmon wrote a book entitled A Caveat, or Warning for Common Cursators, vulgarly called Vagabonds. To gather the material for this short book, he basically collared people who looked sketchy and enticed them to share information about their lives and their language with promises of food or sometimes threats of imprisonment. The result is a short treatise that outlines numerous examples of the different types of con men and women and the types of tricks they played to steal from and take advantage of others. I'll tell you, if you're looking for a way to flavor up a rogue, it might be helpful to look through this text and the others that I've gathered through my preparation for this episode. All the texts are freely available, some on university sites, but most on the lovely Internet Archive, a site that I have come to treasure for access to old texts. If anything we talk about in this episode has piqued your interest, please be sure to check the show notes because I've provided links to several books related to this topic. If I count correctly, I've pulled together the text for nine books from this time, so there's a rich mine of detail waiting for your clever mind to go to work. I'll conclude this brief literature review by saying I've only scratched the surface on the History of Thieves' Cant. It looks like there's a vast body of writing out there, both modern scholarship and contemporary writing, that gives us insight into this language that is meant to obscure criminal intent. Please be sure to check out those resources, but be ready to read stuff written several hundred years ago. Now for a few other examples. It's entirely possible that a resourceful dungeon master could totally go digging and restore a form of this canting language for in-game use, And that could be a fun addition, but the good news is you don't have to go to a lot of trouble to do so because there are other forms of specialized communication that are more accessible and closer to us in time. Consider these alternate forms of specialized speech. The first is Cockney rhyming slang. This form of speaking originates in London's East End and is a way of speaking that replaces a common word with a rhyming alternate. For example, if I were to mention that someone put his hat on his head... A way to do so in this slang would be to say, he put his hat on his loaf of bread, where loaf of bread is the rhyme for head and replaces it. Now for the fun part. Over time, as these rhymes become commonplace among those who use the slang, people familiar with it could begin to shorten things up and just reduce it to, he put his hat on his loaf. With that familiarity, it wouldn't take long for a sentence in which the uninitiated can understand every word individually, to still be unintelligible. Mission accomplished. A second interesting possibility is the cryptic symbology of the group of transient workers that we call hobos. When we think of hobos, we might think of a scruffy guy walking around with a bindle stick over his shoulder, and that is certainly a part of the culture. Hobos really became a growing part of the U.S. population in the years following the American Civil War and picked up in the early 1900s, Hobos are distinct from tramps in that while both travel, hobos are looking for work. Of course, this was an uncertain life, and those rootless travelers were often regarded with suspicion. Because of this, they quickly devised a means of communicating through a shared visual language, a written or physical medium that conveyed information about a place or people. I remember first learning about this and being amazed by the concept when my granny told me about my Uncle Carl. Who had discovered that hobos apparently left signs on their florida farm indicating that it was a safe place to find short-term work this was done either through stones piled in a certain way on the edge of their farm or through symbols scratched or painted onto a wooden post or something similar what was fun and neat to me is that my uncle figured out what these signs were saying and managed to leave some signs of his own to communicate back which is just a cool notion I found a couple articles that share both the history and some of the symbols of this written language, and these might be helpful for you to look at if you're considering using a visual cant in your game world. The final example I want to share is the authentication aspect of hidden knowledge. We deal with this some when we quote lines from a movie that we've both seen. If I share a quote from a movie and we've both seen it, you recognize i'm quoting it and you quote a different line back we've just established that we both know something and having determined this shared knowledge we've verified something between us and maybe that changes how we interact with each other because we're both in the know this sign countersign check is a concept that permeates various levels of life today whether we know it or not for instance computer encryption relies on public and private keys that are verified between sender and receiver to establish identity When I was in the army, we were taught the importance of using challenges at the guard post. We were given a challenge word and a response word for the day, and those moving past the guard point were supposed to know both parts of the phrase. In a typical interaction, the guard was supposed to initiate the challenge by using the word in a phrase, and with this prompt, the one trying to pass would disguise the response in a different phrase. So, if the challenge word was winter, and the response was metal, a good challenge and response might sound like this. Guard. You can only grow strawberries in a greenhouse in the winter. Other person. I've heard if you don't, the berries could taste like metal. By using several distinct words, the guard and the one being challenged understand the shared concepts and prove their knowledge. The same concept is involved in intricate handshakes used in certain situations between people who know each other well, where if you don't shake just the right way, then you've just blown it. That's a lot. We've covered quite a few things. We've looked at what can't is. We've looked at where it's come from, kind of, and some examples. So with all that as a foundation, how might we use Thieves' Cant in a game? I know there are creative minds that will come up with far more wonderful ideas than I have, and if you do, I'd love to know what you think of. But here goes. Four ideas that I have come up with. Number one. What if you provide your player with a list of terms or symbols that are used with Thieves' can't in your game? Then, if you sprinkle in some of these phrases in places where you want your rogue to have access to hidden information, it becomes a role playing element to tease out that information. There's a great scene that illustrates this to comedic effect in the movie Oceans 12. Number two. It might be possible to use cant as a parallel form of level advancement. Imagine that your young, low level rogue goes into a conversation and can't keep up with everything because she doesn't know enough cant. Later on in the same session, you reward the rogue with learning a few new terms, and suddenly the information shared at the beginning becomes clear. That could be a fun way to tie this element into the game and enrich it. Number three. Sometimes, dungeon masters resort to special knowledge checks. In the case of the rogue, however, instead of reaching for the dice, consider asking the player to make the appropriate hand sign, give a specialized door knock, or perform an intricate handshake in real life. By making the player demonstrate something in a physical way, you're verifying the player knows the sign, and this might be a memorable way for the player to win that extra bit of knowledge or gain access to an underground sanctum. And number four. One last possible idea is the picture wall. As an example, if the party's looking for instructions to get somewhere in a large city, draw the wall in that smelly alley behind the sketchy tavern and show the party a bunch of graffiti scrawled all over it. There could be letters, numbers, symbols, all sorts of visual distraction in the picture, and to most players it should be a jumble. But if you do it right, there could be a symbol in the right place that points the direction to go, provides a clue to the next stop in the search, or warns of danger. What you provide is up to you, but again, it could be a memorable way of dressing up an information encounter and giving your rogue a chance to shine. I think that's enough for now. So now I have some questions for you, stackers. Have you played in a game where thieves can't play the front stage role? What made it special? Do you have other ideas for how to use this feature in a game? If you have answers to any of these questions, we would love to hear from you. And you know where to find us, Twitter and Instagram at stackadice, email at stack.o.dice at gmail.com, or on Discord. I'm curious to know what you think and to see your brilliant ideas. Please do share them with us because I benefit from your great ideas too. With that, I'll put my flavor shaker away for now, but I'll be on the lookout for another subject for a future creation corner. If you have ideas for a flavoring up episode, please send that our way also. There's lots to dig into in the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide, and we can find ways to improve and flavor up our games together. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you at our table again next time right here at Stack of Dice.